Jupiter and Mercury are direct, my coffee has gotten cold, and we have a listener question. This is Witch Chassel. Let's get to work. Welcome to Witch Hassle, a show talking to practitioners and scholars about the work of witchcraft and finding answers to listener questions about all things magic, occult, witchy, and wild-eyed. I'm your host, Cooper Wilhelm, and today we have a lovely question sent in by a listener. I am very grateful for the chance to talk about this, but before we get to that, I'd like to point out that since Finding answers to listener questions are a mainstay of this program. If you have any questions you'd like to submit to our research department, you can do so either through a form at cooperwilhelm.com slash witchhassle, or you can send them via our Twitter or Instagram accounts, both at witchhassle, or through our Patreon at patreon.com slash witchhassle, where you can also help support the work that goes on here, and also to get some nice little things for yourself, you know, pins, uh, full episodes once we start putting some behind the paywall, a little zine that'll start coming out. So, you know, check that place out, but you can also submit questions there for our research department, like the one that I'm about to read to you now. Dear Witch Hassle, I'm aware of exorcism slash spirit transfers for living beings. Jesus made all those pigs fall off the cliff, etc. My question is, how far back in history do ideas of certain inanimate objects being possessed or haunted go? In other words, horcruxes of a sort, are they real? This is a great question. Thank you so much for sending it in. Honestly, the idea of an inanimate object being in some way imbued with a spirit is big enough and central enough to so much religious and spiritual practice that I would not be surprised if it goes back as far as any kind of metaphysical consciousness among humans goes. So there are a lot of things to talk about with this, so many so that we could do a whole, you know, series of episodes about this. But to go very briefly, there are a few things that I definitely want to touch on today. And those are brazen heads, animated statues, and the idea of trapping a soul or spirit in a physical object. And the first of these, uh, because it is, I think, the most interesting, and in many ways the weirdest of these, is the brazen head. Now there has been this idea in Western occultism for a very long time that a human head, if treated properly, and I don't mean, you know, in the sense of being nice to it, but you know, if the right magical things are done to it, it will be able to speak and give you oracular messages. So you ask the head for information that a living person would not be able to possess about the future, about the true nature of the cosmos, the head tells you. And this goes at least as far back as ideas that St. John the Baptist, once his head was severed, either on his own or through magical processes, started talking as a severed head and giving information. But there are many, many examples, and not, of course, all of them involve real severed heads. But the more interesting ones, a little bit, I would say, perhaps because it's grosser, do involve severed heads. 
According to Madame Blavatsky, in an article she wrote on animated statues for the Theosophist that came out in November of 1886, Ugolino, who was a writer who died in 1289, claims that a particular kind of oracular head that she refers to as a, as a necromantic teraphrim could be made when a newborn baby was killed and its head cut off and a piece of gold was placed under the tongue. And shortly thereafter, according to records that appear in The Temple and the Lodge by Bagnet and Lay, as, as reported in Rodney Orpheus's Grimoire of Aleister Crowley, there was an incident in 1307 when officers of the French king burst into the Paris temple, I'm quoting here, and found a silver reliquary in the shape of a head containing the skull of a woman. It bore a label denoting it as Caput L-V-I-I-I-M, or Head 58M. This might at first seem a mere grisly coincidence, but in the list of charges drawn up by the Inquisition against the Templars on the 12th of August, 1308, there appears the following. Item that in each province they had idols, namely heads, item that they adored these heads, item that they said the head could save them, item that it could make riches, item that it made the trees flower, item that it made the land germinate. Honestly, though, you know, I mean, once you get past the idea that they're using a severed head for magical purposes, or in this case, a, a skull in a silver reliquary, which is a lot cooler than a severed head. You know, this all sounds kind of nice, to be honest, you know, if it's making things bloom and such. But this dovetails well with a lot of the uh, accusations made against the Templars that they were uh, worshipping Baphomet in the form of a brazen or metal head with a beard that actually may or may not have supposedly spoken to them. I need to follow up on that. But once we have this sort of established idea of the talking severed head, we find around that same time ideas that an oracular head could be made artificially of brass. The argument is made that the great wizard and mage Albertus Magnus made one of these, and then his student Francis Bacon years later tried to make one so he could ask the head and its oracular ability to, to, to give true information whether or not a brass wall should be built around the entirety of England to create a impenetrable barrier to protect it from invasions and all kinds of trouble. So the common story about um, Francis Bacon trying to make this is that he ran into trouble and was unable to do it himself. And a version of that story that we have here uh, from The Lives of the Conjurers, which is a, a book published by Thomas Frost in 1876, has it like this. While pursuing his studies at Oxford, Bacon became intimately acquainted with the friar Bungay, who was almost as proficient in magic as himself, though he does not figure in the records of scientific research. These two conjurers constructed a brazen head concerning which we are told in the history just referred to that, quote, in the inward parts thereof there was all things 
like as in a natural man's head, end quote. Unable to give their handiwork the power of speech, they resolved to invoke the aid of Satan, and, with this desperate resolve, proceeded to a wood in the deepest dingle of which they drew a magic circle and pronounced an awful incantation. The devil appeared in the form assigned to him by Anglo-Saxon ignorance and superstition, but declared that he did not possess the power for which the Franciscans gave him credit. Upon being rebuked by Bacon for falsehood and threatened with bonds, his satanic majesty informed them that the vapor of six of the most pungent symbols known would cause the head to speak in a month, adding that their labor would be in vain if they did not hear the voice themselves. So Bacon and this friar, they do what so many of us have done. They gave up and they asked for help. That's entirely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, asking Satan for help seems like trouble. It, you know, it's interesting. There, There's all this literature about selling your soul to the devil or asking the devil for help. And there's a marked shift in it at some point into this idea that the devil will help you, but in a way that you don't want. You know, it's the, the monkey's paw situation. You, you get your favorite food, but it also is poison or something like that. Whereas earlier literature has all these stories of people asking the devil for help and then tricking the devil such that they don't have to fulfill their end of the contract. The devil builds a bridge. My research has shown that there's a lot of, most of the stories of people asking for help from Satan involve infrastructure projects for some reason, but you know, the devil is asked to build a bridge and in return he gets the soul of the first person who is to cross that bridge once it is completed and then they just baptize a pig and push the pig over the bridge. You know, something like that. But in this case, it this seems to be sort of almost in the middle, right? Because it, it is setting up a situation where they will get what they want, but it seems very likely they will be unsatisfied, but with fair warning that, you know, likely this might turn out in a way where you don't want, which I, I you know, honestly, it's kind of nice. But anyway, the story is they build from here, they build the brazen head and they miss it. Someone who is watching this brazen head sometime of the month tries to keep themselves awake by singing, but they fall asleep, and they are awakened by what they think is the brazen head saying time was. They fall asleep again, and they wake up, and they finally hear the, the brazen head say time is past, indicating that they missed, they missed their shot, which is really too bad. We have, you know, Albertus Magnus making one of these. We have Francis Bacon making one of these. And eventually this idea of making a brazen, a brass head for oracular purposes finds its way eventually to most wicked man on the face of the earth, the beast himself, Aleister Crowley. And my primary source for information on Aleister Crowley's brazen head comes from Rodney Orpheus's grimoire of Aleister Crowley, where he lays out various magical practices that he collected from various like small publications that Aleister Crowley did, it seems like for the most part, in his journals and so on. And it's interesting because Rodney Orpheus seems to almost suggest that the brazen head be used as a kind of occult team building exercise, where the idea is that you and your various uh, co-conspirators in the, in the realm of making magic-y this and that, you treat the brazen head as a kind of egregore, as a kind of shared well into which you can put your spiritual and magical energies as a group. But if we can get to brass tacks about this, apparently a 
According to Rodney Orpheus, uh, Aleister Crowley tried to animate the brazen head with the spirit of Belial, which is a, a goetic demon. And this is based in part on the idea that Belial, quote, entered into a certain image and thence gave answers unto those who did offer sacrifices unto him and did worship the image as their god. So there is a sense that one of these can be made with the help, again, of a different demon, if not Satan himself. But what's interesting about this is that it's indicated that you don't necessarily need to make a head to make a brazen head for this purpose. Rodney Orpheus points out that a group he worked with supposedly as a similar sort of coming together exercise put the spirit of the goetic demon Halphus into the broken blade of a dagger that apparently had been used in a failed attempt to murder one of the members, which is metal as hell. Another group that Orpheus knows apparently used a small statue, I'm quoting here, a small statue that mysteriously appeared in the street outside their temple after a celebration and seemed connected to their workings. So what's nice about the brazen head idea is while, like, while the head itself is a staple of magical literature and, and, and tradition, you can conceivably apply the idea of using some sort of goetic spirit to put a spirit into an object to any number of things that you find or think are meaningful. And while we're on the topic of statues, one of the oldest forms of this is an animated statue. We have records of the idea of an animated statue going as far back, at least as the ancient Egyptians, where there was a rite known as the opening of the mouth, where a statue of a deceased person would have its mouth ceremonially opened to restore function to that statue to allow the deceased person amplified therein to be able to act. And we find very similar versions of this rite in a number of different places throughout ancient Egypt being applied to, I think, initially statues, but then later mummies, which are, you know, inanimate objects that eventually can serve as kind of reverse statues of a person because they are sort of the physical form of someone bereft of life. But this ritual would have, it would seem, normally 75 parts and be carried out by the eldest son of the deceased using an implement called a possession calf, which had an end shaped like the tail of a fish. And a source that I found at a place called HellenicFaith.com traced this Egyptian form of animating a statue to the Greek tradition of the animated statue and also actually offered a, a little ritual for you to try to animate a statue yourself. So if you're interested in doing that, feel free to check out HellenicFaith.com. But there are two people they cite as offering indications of the idea of the animated statu statue in ancient Greece, as well as details about that process. And, and the first of those is, is Maximus of Ephesius. And we get the idea of Maximus of Ephesius's work animating a statue secondhand twice, which is to say that we get the idea of this through an anthology of biographies of various philosophers. And in that anthology, the idea of Maximus of Ephesius 
animating a statue is received secondhand. So it's it's a double layer of secondhand information. So in Eunapius's Lives of the Philosophers and the Sophists, which was translated by Wilmer Cave Wright in 1921, but we can date it back to the 4th or 5th century AD. He relates how a person named Julian asked a philosopher by the name of Eusebius about Maximus, and Eusebius tried to dissuade him from having an interest in him by telling him this incredibly rad story about Maximus animating a statue, which I don't like I I can understand the logic of how that's supposed to deter you because like this isn't the serious work the serious work is inside and I there's a lot to be said for that worldview, but I mean just listen to this and like put yourself in the in the in the shoes of Julian and wonder are you going to be de- deterred like from studying with this like David Blaine of the fourth and fifth century A.D. or I guess the fourth century A.D. when this is the story you hear. Not long since he invited us to the temple of Hecate and summoned many witnesses of his folly. When he had arrived there and had saluted the goddess, be seated, said he, my well-beloved friends, and observe what shall come to pass and how greatly I surpass the common herd. When he had said this, and we had all sat down, he burned a grain of incense and recited to himself the whole of some hymn or other, and was so highly successful in his demonstration that the image of the goddess first began to smile, then even seemed to laugh aloud. We were all much disturbed by this sight, but he said, let none of you... Also, I think it's very telling that the terrifying idea is that the statue of a woman is, is, is laughing. Like, the idea that, like, not only is it scary that the statue's talking, it's having a great time. The statue's really enjoying itself. This is horrible. Which I'm just trying to suggest that this this Eusebius guy is just a he's a big old big old stick in the mud. Anyway, so uh, according to him, speaking to Julian, the the goddess laughs and smiles, and then Maximus said, "Let none of you be terrified by these things, for presently even the torches which the goddess holds in her hand shall kindle into flame." And before he could finish speaking, the torches burst into a blaze of light. Now, for the moment, we came away amazed by the theatrical miracle worker, but you must not marvel at any of these things, even as I marvel not, but rather believe that the thing of the highest importance is that purification of the soul which is attained by reason. However, when the sainted Julian heard this, he said, Nay, farewell, and devote yourself to your books. You've shown me the man I was in search of. After saying this, he kissed the head of Chrysanthius and started for Ephesus, which is where Maximus had gone to. There he had converse with Maximus and hung on to him and laid fast hold on all he had to teach. Maximus persuaded him to summon thither the divine, Chrysanthius also, etc., etc., etc. So, wait, we have this description of Maximus animating a statue, and it seems super cool and great and really fun, and something that really upset a square like Asubius, which it's a bonus, I think. And so this feels sort of like what we're talking about when we say, like, putting a spirit inside of an inanimate object. There is, however, a rub to that. And that is that this, you know, henelicfaith.com cites Olympiodorus of Alexandria as stating that when one performs this particular kind of rite to animate a statue, the the god in question isn't actually going inside of the statue. Rather, they're manipulating the statue 
from the outside, sort of in the way that you might say a marionette. So it's not like a Muppet where your hand is inside of it. It's more like Pinocchio before he becomes a real boy, which I don't know if that's close enough for you. To me, that seems close enough. But let's let's keep going on my little uh, travel through the history of animated this and that, um, or really inspirited this and that. A thread we have for this, sort of alongside the idea of the Hellenistic animated statue, is that I, of the Gollum, where you have an animated statue made out of mud. And the idea of the Gollum goes back far enough in Jewish folklore that in part of the Talmud it is either implied or explicitly stated that the first man, Adam, was initially a golem, him having, of course, also been made of earth. And I think the golem is a pervasive enough and interesting enough topic that I could do a whole episode of this show on it. Um, and honestly, if anyone counts themselves an expert on golems or has actually made one, feel free to reach out. I would love to talk to you either on air or off about that because it sounds super, super cool. But an example that I think is emblematic just to sort of get the notion of the golem, you know, in the air in this really brief overview that I'm doing shows up in Peter Marshall's lovely book, The Magic Circle of Rudolf II. Rudolf II was a, an emperor of Hungary, Germany, etc., 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 and living in Prague at the time of his reign was Chief Rabbi Lowe, L-O-E-W, uh, which I believe means lion. Anyway, it is understood that Chief Rabbi Lowe had made a golem, and he had done it by placing under the tongue of the golem in a, in a manner that seems to kind of, you know, this idea of the you make the inanimate thing speak by putting something under its tongue. Like we saw with the Madame Blavatsky story of the of the severed head with something put under its tongue. It's an interesting thread, and I and I, I think it's if you were going to try to figure this one out for how to do it at home, I feel like putting a thing under the tongue is where you would start. But uh, the story of the Golem, at least as it relates to uh, stories circling around this uh, Chief Rabbi Lowe, is that he he placed a Shemhamfarash, which is a parchment on which was written one of the names of God under the tongue. Though an alternative version of how he brought it to life is that he he wrote the letters Emeth, which mean truth on its forehead. And and this story is a little longer, and the idea of this one is that so he would write Emeth on its head, which would enable the golem to move and do things, and he would have the golem work for him and protect the Jewish community of Prague at large. But because no work is allowed on the Sabbath, every Friday he would have to remove the beginning of emeth, so it just said meth, which means death, and it would go into a state of uh, deactivation until he wanted to activate it again, and that apparently one weekend he forgot or neglected to do this, and this caused the golem to go on a rampage and, and, and destroy things, and so he had to ultimately destroy the golem and force it back into a state of dust. And this is a, a theme that I saw popping up in sort of looking at um, stories of golems, this idea that, you know, you make the golem and eventually it gets out of control and you have to uh, 
you have to destroy it. But we also have other examples of animated statues happening sort of around that time period, which is, you know, I guess early modern Renaissance period, with um, Albertus Magnus again, who you will remember from earlier, having made supposedly a brazen head and taught uh, Bacon not necessarily how to do it, because of course Bacon didn't quite pull it off, but like inspiring him with his own ability to do so, had supposedly built an entire man out of brass and inspirited it to work in his laboratory. And I bring that up because it feels like another example of this and there's something special about the idea of doing it out of brass, but also because I don't want to finish this episode neglecting to say that Albertus Magnus is Albertus Magnus's stage name, and I only learned it by doing this research through Brazen Heads. Albertus Magnus's actual name was Albert Groot, and I think that's a lot cooler and a lot funnier. Like, it feels like a Disney thing or like a Marvel thing, so I'm just gonna throw that out there. Next time you're talking about Albertus Magnus, just call him Groot. See what happens. It'll be fun. It's fun for me. I'm having a great time right now. I'm gonna have some more coffee and then keep talking. So, the idea of inspiriting a statue either to make it move or to put a spirit into it is one that it goes at least as far back as the ancient egyptians and we see it tracing various lineages throughout time or appearing separately and independently in different places throughout time and it's continued to this day and to that end i interviewed jesse hathaway diaz and jesse hathaway diaz is one of the founders and owners of Wolf and Goat, which is a shop selling magical materia and hosting classes. He's also got his own podcast about witchcraft called Radio Free Golgotha that is worth looking into. And he's a he's a student and practitioner of Mexican curandismo. He is an Alosha in Lakumi. He is a Tata in Kimbanda. He is, you know, initiated in various traditions. And one of the services he offers through Wolf and Goat is making an inspirited statue. He was kind enough to talk to me about that. So here's the conversation we had about making spirited statues, which he's doing, you know, these days in the Bronx. So we have something that happened as far back as ancient Egypt is happening as recently as conceivably even this exact moment. All right. So, um... At some point, I really want to do like a full interview with you about really anything you want to talk about because I think mm-hmm. your your scholarship is really interesting and your practice is good and you're uh, an important pillar of the community. But uh, in the immediate term, inspiriting statues. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like to start off, just for like people who are listening to this and don't really have a, a background in Kimbanda, can you give like a five second description of what Kimbanda? is or is not? Kimbanda uh, uh, is a Brazilian practice. I hesitate to call it a religion. It, it can function as a religion for some. I think it is more accurate to describe it as a uh, spirit-based, possession-based contract and magical system. So you're, you're forming alliances with, forming relationships with spirits and then making packs and using them to affect end and to grow your presence in or the strength of your choices that you make. So it's a form of perhaps the working with the devil you know and allowing it. So they tend to be spirits that are considered uh, hotter than the other spirit cults that are existing in Brazil. So they're syncretized with devils and have a reputation for being slightly kind of the, the misfits of the spirit world. 
And what role would you say inspirited statues play in Kimbata? Uh, well, there are, it's also good to know that there are many different Kimbandas. The, it, the mm-hmm. term encompasses is a series of, of practices. So the statues themselves, since the 20th century, with the advent of virtual marketplaces that you, know, you could go and, and pick up a chalkware statue, a plaster statue, uh, it becomes one of the mainstays of, of temples because you can furnish whatever your your gathering place and there become certain patterns of recognition for how certain spirits look and statues become a main way to uh, in the spiritist traditions as opposed to the Kondomblé, which is the more formal uh, traditions in Brazil, which use representations of, of deities and spirits that are made of many things, uh, are ritually fed blood and things like this. The statues in the spiritist centers become a substitute, a different version of a similar thing. It's a gathering place of energy to focus on the relationship with the spirit. To what extent is the spirit actually connected to any individual statue? Is it just sort of like a like a internet jack in the wall, sort of, or is there actually sort of like a part or whole of the spirit inside of the statue? You'll get different answers from different people, and it also depends on the traditions of each of the individual temples that are there. So, in some, from some points of view, the chakra statue is just a chakra statue, and it's. It might be washed in certain substances, some herbal substances or alcohols, in order to cleanse it and empower it, and that through invocation, through singing, and through drawing points, there's two points of access there that are always calling to a spirit, both through symbol and through song, that the statue becomes a dwelling place of spirit, if if just temporarily. But there are also ways in which you can, quote-unquote, charge the statue uh, or cross the statue where it is no longer just washed and invoked, spirit is invoked into it. It is a way of putting spirit into it through materia, through material points of power that then the spirit agrees that with a certain amount of those things there that the statue becomes an embodied representation of that spirit, a link to the divine through the material. And indeed in the paradigm that we're talking about, there is less of a divide between the spiritual and the material. It would not be, um, it's a more European split in there that would influence it. And so this this using materia in combination and in concert with through the spirits themselves, through divination or, or transpossession that confirm that this is what should go in this thing so that it is agreeable for the spirit to dwell within said object. This is going to be where this gets a bit more unorthodox. Mm-hmm. But to bring this in line with the actual sort of question that somebody sent in and see if this might be relevant or not to that, could you build one of these statues and consecrate it and connect it in some way to a human spirit? Say someone, you know dies or even someone is alive and they want to prepare something like this for themselves so once they die they can be sort of summoned back via one of these objects. Mm. There are many traditions in which that is done. I think first and foremost we have to have an understanding of what spirit contact is and spirit sight because it is not in in these traditions there might be a 
whether it's Kimbundo or various traditions in the New World that, I, that I'm familiar with, there must be a point of contact with the spirit. The spirit must already be speaking and desire to go into the thing. It is choosing the object that it will go into. It is less about binding a dead person to an object unwillingly. That is not a practice that I, I'm familiar with in the sense of the pragmatism of, of the traditions I'm involved with. There are ways to, if you have the remains of a person, that's a different thing because you can bind the spirit of someone if you have that physical contact, the living healing through that spirit, which in some ways you can see reflected in even the cult of the saints of like you have a piece of this saint and therefore that saint has a stronger connection to you and you can use that to help perform miracles and to intercede in the Catholic and folk Catholic paradigms. But within using it for human spirit uh, in that way. Well, there are some in Kimbana that believe that the Eshes and Pumbajiras, the, the spirits that we work with, were all indeed human at one point. Uh, there are some that don't. just depends on the particular cosmologies of, of the person there, but, you know, who's creating whose dogma. But could you do it? Yes, in theory. But there must be a contact with the spirit that knows what it is or a spirit that can uh, direct you in that. It would be, you cannot, perhaps you can't give what you don't have, so you would need something that has greater authority or can can borrow that authority in some way in order to do it. If that makes sense. I'm not sure if that was skirting around the question. Or not. I mean, that, that, that does... That that is very helpful. Though just to like um, make one thing sort of clear, because we're mm-hmm. talking about you can't. It would be very difficult to do this to something against its will. But yes. if if someone were if someone like were interested in preserving themselves in this way, and so mm-hmm. we're, we're theoretically a very willing participant in being connected to one of these objects, that mm-hmm. wouldn't pose that much. The problem wouldn't be the spirit the willingness of the spirit, it would be maybe the power of, not to draw up your own metaphor, but like the spirit would be willing, but would the, would the flesh be too weak to pull that off? Or <laughs> I, well, also, I mean, depending on how we define statue and, 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 the, and the traditions that do work with the dead in this way, would you bring a person into a statue, a pre-made statue, or to make something like that? How do we define this? term, even the anthropological term fetish, like what what does that mean and how does that go forward? Because there are shrines that are built using the remains of, and not necessarily in Kimbanda, I'm just saying in, in, in some traditions of using the physical remains of a person, that that spirit is asked if it will participate in the building of that shrine. It is not usually to the memory of that person, but incorporating that person's physical remains into the shrine for something else to to elevate it or to, to boost its power or things like that. And the spirit must be willing in order to do that. Could you do it without the spirit's consent if you know what you're doing very well? It is believed, yes. Could you, for yourself, are you going to have a, a mannequin in the corner that you then inhabit and uh, insole it? Perhaps it's not, I'm, I would never say no. Is it something that you know, the average person is going to do? More than likely not. The African-derived traditions would place a heavy emphasis on a material charge that went into the the statue in order to make it sympathetic for the possession by that spirit. There are 
in European traditions, you know, I, the idea of a, of, a, of a god dwelling within a statue or a hero dwelling within a statue. Is the hero bound to that statue in the same way? Is it unique just to that statue? That would be up for debate. But the idea of sacrificing doves to a statue of Hermes so that it can, that Hermes himself can deliver messages faster. Are you sacrificing to the statue or to the god, or is there a, a, an understanding that you're somehow engaging in both by doing that? So certainly images in some Southeast Asian cults of the dead of building images for people uh, that have passed. Some of those images might include the, the skeletal remains of the people that you are then giving new body to. And I think that's a different, uh, perhaps a, a different tweak on the same question because that is a shrine built upon the physical memory of someone and perhaps engaging with it in, an, in a new form, a new flesh of plaster or wood. But there's a difference there between that versus like a chocolate statue, a gesso statue, which is considered in by tradition to be very sympathetic towards a spirit living and because of its porous nature, because mm-hmm. of the of the bone like consistency of a clay substance that is actually the ground down skeletons of ancient beings. So this, you know, bone calls to bone. The idea that you could put any spirit that could possess a human could go inside a human skull. Because bone calls to bone. It is a container for a spirit that is recognizable. As to keeping the spirit in there, those are the different technologies and subtleties that are part and parcel of many traditions of of what is the difference to have an object that can be used to call many things, a crystal or triangle of art type of mentality. Or is it this statue is going to be ensouled by or inspired by this specific spirit when it wants to, or are you imprisoning the spirit within this new body? Mm. And are all those things possible according to many traditions? Sure. Is it you know questions of ethics and questions of, of success are going to vary from person to person. Marvelous, thank you. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. You have been known to build Inserted statues yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, if someone wanted to commission you to do this, mm-hmm. how would they go about that? Um, well, contacting me would be right. a great start in in and preferably in a material form, so that I'm not dependent upon um, the the siren alarms of of the dream world. Um, or the invoice through dreams. Yes, exactly. No, I I own a business with my business partner, uh, Wolf and Goat which is wolf-and-goat.com. And we have made many statues in the past in this form. Also, we, you know, our experience along those practical lines, we used to take a lot of commissions, and now we, we found that it was very difficult to honor a lot of those things. It is something we do in private practice and, and certainly do those things, and we do many different statues. But generally, there are contracts that we engage with and then pass those things on. But yes, contacting me through wolfandgoat.com is probably the best way, or finding me in the various Facebook forums that my own spirit seems to be ensouled in sometimes uh, in, in, or imprisoned in. It is a terrifying thought that someday Mark Zuckerberg might be the greatest psychopomp. Oh, absolutely. The, the greatest spirit trafficker owning different parts of our souls in perpetuity. The yeah. internet never dies. Always, always glad to end an interview on a on a note of great terror and distress. Of course. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, and hopefully we'll be able to do like a full 
interview about you and all the wonderful things you do and are soon. My pleasure, and I hope it was both complicating and elucidating and go from there. It's a complex topic, not easily answered quickly. So I guess the answer is yes and to most mm-hmm. things. <laughs> well, I mean, all magic is a kind of improv anyway, so this is very... As it should be. As it's very appropriate. <laughs> Marvelous. Thank you so much. Have a, all right. have a great day. Thank you. You too. Many thanks to Jesse Hathaway-Diaz for taking the time to speak with me and being willing to do it over the phone, which was fun because we are only one, actually two boroughs away from each other, but it might as well be 100,000 miles. Be sure to check out Wolf and Goat. Be sure to check out the many classes that Jesse Hathaway-Diaz tends to do and lectures, and of course to check out his wonderful podcast, Radio Free Golgotha. As we touched on near the end of that conversation, you know, this question that the listener sent in isn't just about putting the spirit of something into an object, you know, a god, a demon, but also about the idea of making a horcrux, of putting a human spirit into an inanimate object so that it can kind of linger there, either to be protected or to be called upon back into a kind of life from there. And that's a more... That's a specific tangled thread through magic that I I want to trace with you. Because, I mean, there, there are a lot of different versions of things that are this or could be this or, you know, maybe if you, if you twisted the dials a little bit and messed with things somewhat, you would get some version of this. And I want to take you through just a few of those. Though I suppose before we make that transition, it's worth pointing out, just as a side note, because I would feel bad about leaving this out, you know, if you if you look at a lot of the sort of old grimoires that come from the European or Western magical tradition that list, you know, demons or planetary spirits or something like that with the language that they control 40,000 other spirits or 10,000 other spirits or the captain of, of 50 demons or whatever, you know, those are spirits that if you were going to do a grimoire working, you could conceivably ask to have placed in an object for a purpose. But... Now that we've got that sort of settled and covered, let's talk for a moment about the idea of actually putting a human soul or spirit into an object or otherwise kind of forcing it to stay somewhere for its own protection or something like that. In the form of a horcrux, at least as I understand it from the Harry Potter books, which, and I I don't say this in the kind of like, I'm too cool for school kind of way. I just, as a point of fact, I did not finish the books. I got halfway through Goblet of Fire and I and I stopped. So my understanding of like how the Horcrux, at least in Harry Potter works, is potentially uh, confused and limited. But as I, I'm led to understand that the sense is that a Horcrux, the, the, the villain is, is, his soul is put in one and then he's resurrected from it at a time when he is safe, kind of like the idea of the great old ones in H.P. Lovecraft being hidden until the time is right or something like that and there are sort of versions of this in the the western magical tradition which i keep focusing on the western ones because that's the one i know anything about and i would uh i i would feel it inappropriate to sort of make huge generalizations about traditions that I, i don't know anything about but um a lot of these things that are sort of about the idea of like putting a human soul someplace are negative they're traps you know, you have the idea of the witch bottle, for example, which is a, a tradition that you'll find in a lot of places of, of a kind of defensive magic, where if you worry that you are being bewitched, you can make a witch bottle, which is 
A bottle in which you put some kind of bait, often urine is the classic one, but something that sort of is, speaks to your essence. So maybe you can put in your toenail clippings or bits of your hair, that sort of thing. And you put that in the bottle along with sharp objects, nails, broken glass, things like that. And the idea is that the spirit of the person who is trying to bewitch you in coming to attack you will be decoyed into this witch bottle and become trapped. And then you can either leave them in there or throw the witch bottle, say, on a fire so it explodes. And the idea is that whatever part of that person's spirit has been stuck in the witch bottle will die and kill that person with them. So, you know, you, you think you're being bewitched, you don't know who's doing it, you don't know how, you fill a jar full of your urine, throw some nails in there, bury it in front of the front door, and then um, two weeks later, your next door neighbor uh, dies horribly of some sort of confusing sickness, and you go, oh, okay, it was them. Glad I protected myself and also, I guess, did a murder in self-defense whoopsie-doo. And we have a similar version of that that shows up in Harry Middleton Hyatt's book Hoodoo, Conjuration, Witchcraft, and Root Work, which I think is a really great resource that not a lot of people seem to be using, but it's a it's a collection of interviews with root workers, people who do hoodoo in the American South from the uh, 1930s, and there are about five or 6,000 pages of these interviews. It's a wonderfully useful resource. But in it, he mentions, you know, he finds a number of people who talk about this idea of trapping a person's soul in a jar, that you have the jar open, you wait for them to speak, and then you close the jar and you shut it, and they'll be sort of stuck in there. Their soul is trapped in that object until you release them. So we have another example of this idea of, like, you can put a soul or bind a soul to something, but it's bad for it. It's not going to have the same protective idea or protective spirit that a horcrux is supposed to have. And in a way, this kind of, like, goes back to some of the oldest ideas in Western, you know, magic. You have a lot of ideas of Western magic trace their, themselves either actually or in some sort of sense of, you know, here's my lineage, even if it's not true, to King Solomon and... One of the things that King Solomon supposedly did is trap uh, demons in stone bottles and throw them into the ocean because they would be stuck under the waves of the sea. And also, I think there was some understanding that the uh, the ocean is, you know, salt water has a kind of evil to it. And so you throw evil things into the evil where they can sort of be neutralized in some way. But when it comes to things that are more positive... You know, you, you trap a spirit in an object, you put a spirit in an object, and it isn't bad for that spirit. You know, there are some places we can look. And it's funny, because I, I, I asked a friend of mine about this, because I thought he might have some good ideas. And he was incredibly helpful. He's actually the person who turned me on to Brazen Heads, and that's the, the great Dr. Alexander Cummins. So before I say anything more, huge thanks to, to him, and you should definitely check out his website alexandercummins.com and his his great I mean he's actually on Jesse Hathaway's podcast they co-host together uh, Radio Free Golgotha so check that out and Alexander is available for readings he's the author of many great books so huge help great guy big fan dear friend yeah but anyway he pointed not just to the idea of the brazen head and particularly Aleister Crowley's uh, brazen head using that goetic demon but also to um, Reginald Scott's 
Discovery of Witchcraft. And if you're unfamiliar with Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, it's a book from 1584. And it's a weird one. Because my, my sense is that, you know, Reginald wrote this book as a way of fighting against the idea of witchcraft. Essentially saying that witchcraft is fake, it's bunk. I think his stance is that it reeks of Catholicism, which he is also against. But then he also details a bunch of magical operations in it, which I don't know if that's done really in the spirit of here's what not to do, or here's a fake thing that, you know, if you see someone doing this, they're taking you for a ride or something like that. But it had the effect of essentially just giving a lot of people a lot of magical operations in a book that, you know, ostensibly was safe to have around because it was supposed to be against magic. Uh, so uh, great, great work there. But anyway, in his book, he has two operations that I think are relevant to this discussion. And they actually happen one after the other, which is super helpful for me. But one of them, which he refers to as an experiment of the dead, is an operation to bind a dead spirit to you as a witch's familiar. So there isn't anything in here about taking a dead person and actually bringing them back to life in a corporeal form, like what happens, I think, at the end of the Harry Potter books and movies. I don't know if it's too early to say that without spoiling it for people. I'm pretty sure he comes back, Rafe finds, in those movies. But um, anyway, so this isn't quite what we want, right? Because it doesn't actually bring someone back to life. But it does preserve their spirit in a particular way. So it's halfway there, and presumably if you can get halfway there, you can get the other half of the way there. But this operation is very complicated, and it's very long. And so if you're interested, you can find the full one in Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft. And now that I think about it, this operation actually gets written up on Al's website. So check out Al's website pertaining to this and also referencing Mary Parrish, who I'm going to talk about soon. But an interesting about this thing about this operation as it appears in Reginald Scott is this idea that when you're binding the spirit to you, you have two options. And one of them is to find a person who committed suicide. And the other is to find a living person and have them willingly give you access to their spirit before they actually die. And it's interesting to, to think about this idea that you, you whether this oath is actually necessary as part of it and the, the necessity of it is somehow obviated in the case of the person who committed suicide by them having, you know, forfeited certain uh, spiritual rights through killing themselves, which would make sense in like a Christian theological context. Or if the idea of getting the oath from the living person isn't necessary, but it just helps a lot to have someone have the other side of this transaction willingly engaging of it. But Reginald Scott puts it this way. First, fast and pray three days and abstain thee from all filthiness. Go to one that is new buried, such a one as killed himself or destroyed himself willfully, or else get the promise of one that shall be hanged, and let him swear an oath to thee, after his body is dead, that his spirit shall come to thee, and do thee true service at thy commandments in all days, hours, 
and minutes, and let no person see thy doings but thy fellow. And about eleven o'clock at night, go to the place where he was buried, say with a bold faith and hearty desire to have the spirit come that thou dost call for, thy fellow having a candle in his left hand and in his right hand a crystal stone, and say these words following, the master having a hazel wand in his right hand, and these names of God written thereupon, cross tetragrammaton, uh, cross Adonai, cross Agla, cross Craton, cross. Then strike three strokes on the ground, and say, Arise, name of the dead person, Arise, name of the dead person, Arise, name of the dead person, I conjure thee, Spirit, name of the dead person, by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that thou do obey to my words, and come unto me this night, verily and truly, as thou believest to be saved at the day of judgment, and I will swear to thee an oath, by the peril of my soul, that if thou wilt come to me and appear to me this night and shew me true visions in this crystal stone and fetch me the fairy Sibylia, that I may talk with her visible and she may come before me as the conjuration leadeth, and in so doing I will give thee an ominous deed and pray for thee name of dead person, to my Lord God, whereby thou mayest be restored to thy salvation at the resurrection day, to be received as one of the elect of God to the everlasting glory. Amen. And there's there's a lot more here. Like, it's quite a long, it's quite a long bit of business. But I mean, this idea that you can get this spirit to help you, and whether or not you have gotten the permission of the spirit beforehand or it's a it's someone who who committed suicide there's this lovely touch that you are making an oath to the spirit himself that it's not just you telling the spirit to do something in part possibly because of an oath that they made but you are making your own contribution to this in the offer to pray for their spirit once their their deed is done and i think that's really i think that's really lovely the other the other operation that uh we get from reginald scott in this area is one to enclose a spirit in a crystal stone. And again, this is that situation where you sort of, you have something and you trap it, and like it's not necessarily alive, but you could conceivably, if you could figure it out, resurrect it from there. But I want to come back on this, this first operation because we actually have a record of someone who might have tried it. Because of course Reginald Scott, being ostensibly anti-witchcraft, would not have done this. Though I mean, the thing about like being anti-witchcraft and then having a whole manual of witchcraft things to do, not a whole manual, but like having all these like very specific operations kind of seems like when someone says, well, you know, I legally can't tell you to go to this address and look under this rock to maybe find drugs. So don't do that. You know, it's that sort of thing. Like if you're specific enough, it seems like you're just trying to give people the ability to do it. But we have some suggestion that someone might have actually given this a go or some version of it. There was a, a cunning woman in London in the 17th century named Mary Parrish. And there's a great book about her that I, I would love to recommend to you called The Magical Adventures of Mary Parrish by Francis Timbers. But Mary was a cunning woman, which is to say, you know, a practitioner of, of witchcraft and so on. And our primary source of any information about her comes from the autobiography of Goodwin Wharton, 
which is an unpublished manuscript that was written by an MP as his autobiography that became his daily journal and then became basically the the life and times of of Mary Parrish when she was on her deathbed and relating to him her life story. And the book is, I think, the, the manuscript is, I think, 500 pages, 600 pages. It's huge. It was described by historian Roy Porter as ranking high in the annals of psychopathology. But in it, we sort of learn of, of Mary Parrish as a cunning woman who conceivably had the spirit of a friend of hers while he was still alive sworn to her as a familiar after death. And that friend was a man named George Whitmore, who ended up befriending Mary Parrish when she was in a debtor's prison in London called Ludgate. You know, this is this is like another example of a situation where we have sort of, we're getting it secondhand doubly, because we're getting Mary Parrish's version of it as told to Goodwin Wharton, and told very much for his benefit, conceivably, because of course Goodwin Wharton ended up being someone who hired Mary Parrish to do magical operations for him and I think became her primary benefactor for the sort of latter part of her life. So the author of this book speculates that maybe she saw Reginald Scott's operation. Maybe maybe she didn't. But essentially, George is condemned to die for being a highwayman or for robbery, I guess. And she asks him to return to her after death as a familiar spirit and you know we're getting his response to this uh double second hand because it's as told by mary parish to someone else who wrote it down and of course with the very specific idea of this audience in mind but not only does he conceivably say yes he says it so enthusiastically that he says i ask but one thing of you and you give me a thousand i ask only to die in your charity and with your pardon for having offended you and justly deserved your anger, and you give me the power of perpetual happiness for next to serving God, which this will no ways hinder me of. There is nothing can please my thoughts but the liberty of coming to you again when I am dead and telling you how much I loved you whilst alive and how since then still continue to do it, and also by the services I shall then do you, hear you repeat again, your having forgiven me for what I did whilst living, and that I have made you some requital for atonement for them, and for all the rest you have enlightened, etc., etc. And it just goes on like this. But again, we have this idea that um, you can bind the spirit of a human being to you as long as, or at least containing this idea that it is some kind of mutual transaction, that it's not you forcing the soul to you, but it can be done in a friendly way with a certain measure of even gratitude coming from the spirit in question. And so I think if one were to try to pursue making a horcrux or horcrux, horcrux, horcrux along these lines, you would need to sort of have this spirit of mutual, a mutually beneficial situation, kind of mutual aid between the living and the soon to be dead. But again, this is, you know, something where we have a spirit that returns to you and maybe you could sort of put it in a crystal, store it, store it in an animate object, but it's not quite the Harry Potter thing, right? And so I went looking around and tried to find something like, what is what is like Harry Potter? And a website that is regrettably called Nerd Vault pointed to something that I should have just thought of all along, which is James Frazier. So James Frazier's book, The Golden Bough, is a collection uh, various anthropological, ethnographic details about religious and spiritual traditions in various places, and, and Frazier uses it to draw a lot of conclusions, and 
at the very end of this book, he brings up the idea of externalizing a person's soul in a plant, in an animal, notably in their hair, and points to this as being a reason why a lot of people undergoing witchcraft trials were shaved before they were tortured, because the idea was if their soul was in their hair, if nothing was done to the hair, nothing could be done to them in any meaningful way. And in addition to these living things, he also talks about the idea of externalizing a soul in an inanimate object. And there are two of these that I, 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 I looked at very closely, but I had a lot of trouble completely substantiating them in the anthropological literature, which is not to say that, you know, there is an actual bona fide scholarship independent of James Frazier that can back this up, but more that while I wasn't able to find it, I was able to find things that seemed related and were very interesting on their own. So I think they're worth discussing for a second. So one of the ones that he brings up is this idea that among the Dyaks of Pino, a district of southeastern Borneo, and I'm quoting here, when a child is born, a medicine man is sent for who conjures the soul of the infant into half a coconut, which he thereupon covers with a cloth and places on a square platter or charger suspended by cords from the roof. This ceremony he repeats at every new moon for a year. The intention of the ceremony is not explained by the writer who describes it, but we may conjecture that it is to place the soul of the child in a safer place than its own frail little body. This conjecture is confirmed by the reason assigned for a similar custom observed elsewhere in the Indian archipelago in the K Islands where there, when there is a newly born child in a house, an empty coconut split and spliced together again may sometimes be seen hanging beside a rough wooden image of an ancestor. The soul of the infant is believed to be temporarily deposited in the coconut in order that it may be safe from the attacks of evil spirits, but when the child grows bigger and stronger, the soul will take up its permanent abode in its own body. Now, I went looking and digging around and I wasn't able to find anything exactly like this, but I was able to find something kind of similar and related, and I think it's interesting enough that it's worth talking about here. So I, I found a study from the Journal of the Malaysian Branch of the Royal Asiatic Society from 1985, and this, this, this study, The Newborn Malay Child, a Multiple Identity Being, brings up some ideas that sort of seem similar to what Fraser is talking about, but complicate them. And one of them is this idea that they came across this notion that the umbilical cord could only be cut of a new, for a newborn child once the placenta had been expelled, because the placenta was understood to be sort of the older sibling of the child. And if the umbilical cord was cut before the placenta was expelled, the placenta still within the mother would call to the child to sort of demand that the child return to its mother's womb. Or, conceivably, it would just mean that the, the parting between the two, I mean, the way the study puts it is, or the parting having been too abrupt, the baby itself would cry over his elder brother's departure. So there's some concern the child will be drawn back into the womb, or maybe it will just be upset by this. But here's where the coconut comes in, which kind of links things to Fraser, but is infinitely kind of more interesting, which is this idea that once the placenta is expelled, it is dried with salt and tamarind, which are both preservatives, and then along with a metal nail, it is wrapped in a clean white cloth, which another study of the authors of this study suggests 
brings to mind the idea that like this 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 white cloth evokes a burial shroud. So there's this idea that this this placenta is being treated very much as an independent human being, and then all of that is put into a coconut shell, and the coconut shell is buried with a hole pierced through the top and a bamboo rod put through the hole so that the placenta inside can breathe. And there's a sense that if this is not done, the placenta and the spirit of the being the placenta sort of represents, the elder uh, sibling of this child, will become angry and attack the living, especially this child. And if it cannot breathe, if this bamboo rod is not put in the coconut as it is, as it is buried, that it may in fact attack the breathing of that child. So it's not so much that we have the idea of the child's soul being put into an inanimate object, but the idea of the, the child's well-being being linked to an inanimate object that is sort of buried underground and ensouled naturally. The other thing that Fraser brings up in this passage that I looked into, and once again was not able to find exactly what Fraser is talking about, was able to find something sort of vaguely related and still very interesting is that Fraser says that uh, among the among a, a people to be found in Alaska when a child is sick the medicine man here I'm quoting will sometimes extract its soul from its body and place it for safekeeping in an amulet which for further security he deposits in his own medicine bag it seems probable that many amulets have been similarly regarded as soul boxes, that is, as safes in which the souls of the owners are kept for greater security. And so, again, I wasn't able to find exactly this, but what I did find, which seemed similar and relevant, is so much more exciting and complicated. So, I found a study from 2009 from the journal American Ethnologist called The Optimal Sacrifice, A Study of Voluntary Death Among the Siberian Chukchi. And this is absolutely fascinating. I think it's worth a read. Uh, you can get access to it just for what it talks about the idea of the, the cosmology of the Chukchi. But one of the elements they describe in here is this idea that the, the Chukchi of the, uh, the Chukchi understanding of the soul is different from the one we might find, say, in Reginald Scott or something like that, where the body and the soul are sort of both flip sides of each other, as the as the author puts it. They're, they mirror one another. And so there's a way in which people can essentially treat their body as the external soul of what we would consider to be a soul on the inside. That like they can flip these around and this comes into play with a wooden amulet that is worn on the outside of the body called the Kamak Lu'u, which is sometimes referred to as a wooden face. And the idea of this is that there are there are beings in, in the in the Chukchi uh, cosmology who hunt human souls because they see them as essentially animals. And if you wear one of these amulets, what you are doing is essentially turning this, this wooden amulet, this Kamuk Lu'u, into a body that your body, which can act as a soul in this cosmology, is inhabiting. So in fact, you are inspiriting this amulet with yourself as its soul. And this provides you with camouflage and protection from these evil spirits, or not even evil spirits, but these, these predatory spirits that hunt human beings. But this welcomes us down a really interesting rabbit hole in, in Chukchi thought that I think is, you know, something that 
I don't want to get into in too detailed a way here because we're already past an hour on this episode, but perhaps something to bring up at a later date is this idea that this amulet is not just, you know, uh, a wooden body that you inhabit as a soul to protect yourself, both body and soul. It is also supposedly a representation of the of the ancestor that you are said to be an embodiment of. And as a result, there's this understanding that one needs to feed this amulet so that the ancestor that you are uh, an incarnation of on this plane will continue to be appeased such that it doesn't kill you to bring you back to the realm of the dead where the ancestor is said to be there's this whole idea of the of possessing a soul as not owning a soul but rather as being a sort of temporary leaseholder on this plane of a soul that is truly owned by the the dead spirit uh in the land of the dead that is also you in a way that I, I have not fully wrapped my head around, but is is fascinating and definitely worth looking into. So so check that out. If you have access to American ethnologists, be sure to check out the study, The Optimal Sacrifice, a study of voluntary death among the Siberian Chukchi. But I think that's, that sort of almost gets us sort of close to this idea. And I think more elaborate research into Fraser and the sources that he looked at might yield as close as we're going to get to a horcrux. So I'm going to call this question almost answered or half answered. An answer has been presented to this question that may not be entirely satisfying to me or anyone else, but it was certainly interesting to get here. So thank you so much for submitting that question. If you have any questions, please do submit those to us via cooperwilhelm.com slash witchhassle or Twitter or Instagram at witchhassle or via our Patreon, patreon.com slash witchhassle. And if you like the show, if you if you like what's going on here, uh, feel free to throw a few dollars through Patreon because uh, every little bit helps. Be sure to check out the next episode next week where I will be interviewing Chiron Armand about his shamanic practice and about his various books on clearing curses and clearing spaces. This has been Witch Hassle. Our theme song is performed by Sebastian Baverstam and was recorded by Edward Lee. Thank you so much for listening, and good luck with the work ahead.